Let me invite your attention to Matthew 6, 12. This morning I want to speak on the subject of the power of the prayer for pardon. What a marvelous hope and what a marvelous strength there is found here. In fact, multiplied powers are found here. It reminds me of the story of John and his sister Sally who were at their grandparents' home one, uh, one week. And John uh, was given a new slingshot and he worked hard to become accurate in his shot and uh, didn't do too well until one day he just impulsively fired at one of grandmother's ducks that uh, uh, used to float around and swim around on the pond and he nailed it perfectly and the duck died. He was horrified, number one, that he was accurate, number two, the duck died. And so he picked up the duck and buried it under the wood pile, but his sister Sally saw him and she said, you better remember the duck. Well, they had dinner that night and uh, Grandma said to Sally, Sally, I want you to help me with the dishes. And she said, no, John would like to do that himself. And she looked at him and said, so he got up and went to help with the dishes. And the next day, Grandpa wanted to take him fishing. And uh, Grandma said, well, Sally needs to stay here and help me make dinner. And she said, oh, no, John would love to do that. And she looked at him and said, remember the duck. And finally that evening, John was there at the table and he couldn't stand it anymore. His guilty conscience got to him and he finally burst out crying and said, I killed the duck. And Grandma said, I, I know you did. I was standing at the window. I didn't say anything because I was going to watch how long you were going to let Sally make you her slave. <laughs> I want to say to you, anytime you don't have Matthew 6, 12 in your life, you will become a slave to someone or something. You've got to come clean before God and let others do so as well. Got to. In fact, Jesus knew that this was going to be a persistent problem, so he included this in the instruction here in the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. In verse number 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The truth is, is that you can handle sin well when you include this in your prayer life. And in fact, there are multiplied powers in just this one request. Well, what are they? Well, one happens to be this. This prayer recognizes our problems. Did you see verse 12? Forgive us our... Yeah, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, our trespasses. Uh, the Methodists in their translations of the Bible have trespasses. We Baptists have debts. It's because Methodists trespass, we get in hock, okay? But uh, in any case, uh, we, we have debts ourselves. We sin against God. But, but then also, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There are people who wound us and sin against us. This passage here is profoundly realistic. And it is so real that Jesus included it in the model prayer. Beloved, what I want to say to you is, is that life is a matter of running from one temptation to the next oftentimes. That's why I have to start my morning every morning saying, Lord... I'm going to face temptations, I'm going to face offenses, I'm going to face trials and difficulties and decisions and things that will surprise me. I've got to have grace from the very beginning of this day. Because life is filled with debts, temptations to sin, and, and then it's filled with opportunities or the need to forgive others. You know, is our culture and society 
loses the concept of human sin, it grows out of touch with reality. It's no longer real. Real life is a matter of temptation and falling to temptation at times and being wounded and having to forgive others. That's real life. So here's here's the relevance of that. Don't be surprised when you're tempted. And do not be surprised when you're offended. There's going to be time. In other words, you're not entitled to a life that is free from temptation and offenses. You're not that good. And you're on this side of the grave, not the other. You're in the presence of humans, not the full manifest presence of Jesus Christ yet, if you know the Lord. And so this is not a life free from temptation or free from wounds or free from offenses. So I think it probably behooves us this morning to become masters at forgiveness because we sure are going to need it. So this prayer recognizes our problems, but there's a second thing here as well. This prayer ruins our pride, debts, and debtors. Forgive us our debts. Do you know why Jesus taught us to pray that? We are guilty. This prayer smashes pride. It demolishes arrogance. It annihilates and eliminates any false concept of personal virtue that somehow by our works and our virtue and our discipline and our good works that we have elevated ourselves before God. We never get to the point in our lives where this prayer is irrelevant. Only Jesus was there. We will have to consistently, frequently cry out to God, forgive me my debts. And then we're surrounded by that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One refined woman came to D.L. Moody, the Billy Graham of the 1800s, and said, are you telling me that I've got to come to God the same way criminals do? And she, he said, no, God is telling you that. It's going to help you in your walk with God and other people if you just go ahead and conclude. Despite all the blessings in your life, you and I have got to crawl to God the same way criminals do. We aren't any better. It's just oftentimes our sins are not illegal. Or perhaps yours are. Then you've got to come the way everyone else is, and, and you can't exclude yourself on either account. This prayer then ruins our pride. And I want to say to you, if you're humble and you're willing to choke this down as unpleasant as it may be, if you will repent and place faith in Jesus Christ, God will annihilate, eliminate any of your guilt because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the Father is so committed to canceling your sin, He executed His Son at the cross and raised Him from the dead that you might know Him in grace and forgiveness. In fact, not be sprinkled or poured upon, but plunged and immersed in it. This is serious business to God. So this prayer ruins our pride. It recognizes our problems. But there's a third thing that this 
marvelous prayer does as well. It restores our souls. Forgive us our debts. You know, you can wreck your walk with God, with sin, and exacerbate it and make the case worse by refusing to humble yourself and confess sin. You can wreck your walk with God. You can, you can offend God. You can fog up your relationship with God like a Justin Bieber jet plane. The truth is, though, you can clear away the fog, clear away the smoke, and God will embrace you again and restore your soul. He is the God known as that. Friends, He's done that with nations. He can certainly do that with you. So this restores our souls. We can provoke God to discipline and to chastise us, and if we know Jesus, we belong to the Father And the father disciplines his own children. Those who are not his children, he leaves them alone. And and so when you walk in disobedience, let me say to you, when you walk in disobedience and you don't repent and confess and humble yourself and, and, and restore where necessary, and God doesn't bother you, you need to be the most alarmed person in the building, according to Hebrews 12. God disciplines his own children. He lets the devil handle his own. But when you sin, and if you hesitate to repent and confess, God will persecute your careless soul into anxiety. He will create a sense of restlessness and upset. It will bother you because he's chastising you. And and he may be light, but he increasingly intensifies the pressure until there is repentance. That's what God will do. Why? Why? Well, it doesn't do him any good for you to return to him. It makes him happy, but he's got a whole heaven to do that for him. We don't improve God by repenting, by the way. We don't give God something he doesn't already possess. Repentance and confession is not something that really benefits him. In fact, it wounded him with many a scar. It pierced his brow and his hands. Wounds that the Savior still has in His hands and feet today. In fact, in heaven, John said in Revelation 4 and 5 that when he saw Jesus, he appeared as what? A lamb that was slain. It's not a very pleasant picture. So when it comes to forgiving us and restoring us, I don't think God really gets anything out of it. And frankly, I don't know that He really cares. Who benefits? You mean to tell me, are you people trying to tell me that God wounded his own son to benefit you? He really did. Now don't become a typical American narcissist. Give him praise and glory for it. He wants his son to have that. That he deeply cares about. But the, the, the process of forgiveness and restoration really does not benefit him or grant to him something he doesn't already have. What it does is that it does restore your soul. And so you've got more power or more insight to have right guidance. I, I will tell you, it really, really worries me when people drift from the Lord and when they refuse to confess their sin. It really worries me. Pastorally, it's, 
a very difficult problem, and I've watched this for a long time, because usually they make major important decisions in that backslidden condition. And they do so without the full light and the guidance of God. They decide on the wrong job. They decide on the wrong spouse. They decide on the wrong decisions with their children. All sorts of issues when they're not walking fully with God, fully surrendered in humility. May I say to you, if you're not walking intensely with intense humility and confession and repentance before God, hold off any major decisions until you do, please. Don't get stubborn and don't get arrogant because you're probably going to get yourself into something that you wish, you will wish, you had not. And I just don't want you to do that. I want you to rejoice. And my desire for you is nowhere near the great desire God has for you that your joy may be full. This can restore our soul. Hey, this word here, forgiveness, is really interesting. It's used in a variety of contexts in the New Testament. It's the Greek word, epheimi. It's used in Matthew 4.20, where the disciples, epheimi, their nets, when Jesus called them, where the disciples left their nets. They left their small business to follow Jesus. And, And when you repent and humble yourself before God and come to Him for forgiveness, God lets you leave your sin behind like a bad small business. And then it's used in 1 Corinthians 7, 11 through 13 for the word divorce. Like the band Perry, when you're forgiven, you can say, done. Whenever you repent and place your sin in the hand of God and receive His forgiveness, God grants you a divorce from your guilt. So you get to leave it behind like a failing small business. You get to, you get to divorce yourself from the guilt. And then it's uh, used in Matthew 26, 56, sadly, where the disciples forsook Jesus when he was arrested. You get to forsake your sin. And it's not just that you've got to. You've got to. There's an obligation here. But, but it's more than that. It's not just that you've got to leave your sin. You get to leave your sin Because Jesus was forsaken by His disciples and on the cross, by His Father. It's mysterious, but the Father left Him. The Father granted a divorce and fellowship between He and His Son at the cross and punished Him as if He was severed from Him and as if He was the the embodiment of all the guilt of the world. God really wants to grant you forgiveness. Don't doubt that. It restores our souls. Now, this is profoundly important for our church family because before Easter, I'm wanting us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I worry how modern Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper. We've become quite sloppy and sentimental with it in many places, not all. But the Lord's Supper is a time where we renew our purity before God. And if we don't, and we take the Lord's Supper, we become liable to the chastising, disciplining hand of God. Between now and then, it's my intention to remind you to prepare your soul and your heart for the Lord's Supper. And if you're not right with God, and if you're not right with others, 
before taking the Lord's Supper, then we'll give you that opportunity. But if you still are not right, it's okay to postpone taking it. But don't postpone it. 1 Corinthians 11 will help you with that. But another element that will help us here as well to restore our souls is to include verse 12 in our daily prayers. We go before God and we examine our conscience and we ask the Spirit to do that as well because our examination is not full, complete, or entirely true. And so on a daily basis when we pray, we seek the Lord and ask Him to bring to mind whatever is amiss and we get right with Him on that point. And then we confess our sins one at a time. It's not like some pray. And Lord, if we have sinned, please forgive. If? No. We confess our sins the same way we committed our sins. And that is one at a time. And then where necessary, we make restoration. So this prayer restores our souls. This prayer does a, has a, um, a fourth power. And that is, it reunites our people. Did you see here what he said? Forgive us our debts. Oh, it would be marvelous if he stopped there. But for so many, he absolutely spoils the prayer by saying what? As we forgive our debtors. Well, it's spoiling for some. It's actually grace for us all. Gregory of Nyssa, the church father, said, it's interesting with this prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that we're not asking God for us to follow His example, we're actually asking God to follow our example. God, give me only as much forgiveness as I'm willing to extend to others. Now, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have to forgive others before you're saved. You really can't. That's not part of God's plan of salvation. That is a plan for those who already know Him. Jesus is not addressing this to the lost and dying world outside of Christ. He's addressing it to those who already belong to Him. That's what He's doing. So don't misunderstand me. God makes a clear demarcation between those who are following Jesus and those who are not. And to follow Jesus, to come into the Christian family, to be born again, to be saved, whatever New Testament image you want to use means you repent and place faith in the gospel. That's what you do. But for the believer, for us to renew and restore our fellowship with God, we must restore other relationships with forgiveness where it's necessary. That's what we do to walk with God. So, in fact, look at verse 14 and 15. And there's no way to take the rough edges off of this. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's no hidden Greek meaning here to explain that away. There's no other Bible verse in the text that tells the children of God, those who follow Jesus, something that gives them an out. God is rather rigid on this. Once we come to know Christ as Savior, the Father wants us to reproduce that forgiveness where we've been wounded. And if we don't, He gets our attention by withholding forgiveness and restoring our walk with Him. So yes, we forgive the ex. We forgive the one who fired us. If the termination was unjust. 
If it was deserved, that's entirely different. We forgive the annoying family member who just can't seem to get past annoying habits. I know that's irrelevant. We forgive. We forgive the former staff member who disappointed us. We forgive church members who are no longer here or someplace else. Perhaps in front of the NFL pregame show. We forgive the child that disappointed us. Before the foundation of the world, the Father predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. And He is really serious about that. So much so that He orders us to be forgiving as Jesus is forgiving. And if we aren't, He withholds full restoration of our relationship with Him through forgiveness until we do. What, what does it mean to forgive others? How do I know if I have? Well, there are some myths about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not always restoration to um, restoration entirely to um, leadership or service. Forgiveness is not always um, approval of the act that wounded you. Because you forgive someone does not mean that you approve of what they did to you. In fact, it's the exact opposite. To forgive means you forgive sin. You don't forgive good decisions. To forgive means a change in several areas. And, and Lewis Meads has really been a great help with this. That's not to endorse everything Lewis Meads says. But from one of his works, he has suggested forgiveness means a change in view. Whenever someone wounds us, we turn them into this great big monster and this big awful caricature. And there's nobody worse. In fact, we're sure they are the genetic descendant of Adolf Hitler. Or something out of one of our nightmares. Whenever we forgive, we don't see that any longer. We take them just as they are. They're just another beggar trying to find bread like the rest of us, and we caught them at a bad moment, 